Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thank you for joining me. Man, it has been a while since I've been behind the mic. I was traveling. I was in Seattle uh, teaching at East Lake Community Church and also leading two retreats. I'll say something more about those retreats in a few minutes. And then I was in New Mexico. My wife uh, graduated from the Living School. This is Richard Rohr's kind of alternative seminary. That's kind of what I call it. I don't know exactly what they would call it. So that was amazing to be there and with her and, and to get to sit in on some of these teachings and be with this kind of amazing uh, collection of people who are attracted to the contemplative tradition and, and action in the world. Anyway, that was amazing. And then I got some sort of strange like neck injury. I was mountain biking on my gravel bike. So wrong tool for the job, trying to keep up with my son and somehow I injured my neck. So I've been out of commission for a while. So it is uh, good to be um, back in the podcast seat here. I'm in my office in Grand Haven, um, where I'm the... Uh, uh, lead teacher for C3. Check it out. C3 West Michigan's Inclusive Spiritual Community. I teach half the Sundays a year, and um, they have this amazing little office out here in Grand Haven with a nice, beautiful window. So it feels good um, to be... Um, I don't know. It feels good to be back. So let's talk about last, the last podcast I released, which was called Step Away from the Enneagram. Yeah. Of all my podcasts, I got the most feedback from this one. And I wouldn't exactly say it blew up, you know, but more people listen to it than um, ordinarily listen to my podcast. So thank you, by the way, for sharing it, if that's what you did, or uh, saying to your Enneagram friends or enemies, check this out. Um, It helps. Actually, Whatever you can do to support this podcast, I'm really, really appreciative of, particularly sharing it, leaving a review, and also the feedback I get. You can uh, use Facebook to um, give me feedback on the podcast. That's probably the easiest. Um, Or you can use my website, kendobson.com. You can find um, a link on there to send me a message. So anyway, what was my point? My point was, there was a range of reactions. Some people did not like it. I probably lost a few uh, listeners, which tells me something. Um, I'm entering just the right kind of minefield by wanting to address this kind of question. Um, what role does the Enneagram serve in coming to know who we are? And not just the Enneagram, but more broadly, any kind of a self-assessment tool or personality tests or assessments. That's kind of the larger picture that I was hovering around. But anyway, a range of reactions. Some people didn't like it. Some people did. Some people said, hey, I always had questions about the Enneagram. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So thanks for helping me um, at least begin a conversation about it. Some people wanted to argue with me and say, well, you're, you must be a four because... Um, they resist categorization, and, and so you're simply being a four in your, quote, not liking the Enneagram, which is, which is funny, like using the Enneagram to dismiss everything that I said, um, which I guess that's to be expected. Um, 
so a whole range of reactions. Some people didn't like that I called out um, Mars Hill by name um, because there was a time when Mars Hill was kind of obsessed with the Enneagram and even making kind of hiring and firing decisions based on Enneagram numbers. And I was saying, this, we have totally, completely lost the plot. And, and me too, I was caught up in it too. I don't mean to talk about them as some kind of other, like those people that I used to work with. No, I was a, a part of this landscape and I was busy categorizing uh, and labeling and mining books and resources so that I could map the world out uh, to my liking. I know what number my parents are and my friends and my colleagues and the people I don't like and blah, blah, blah. So that's, of course, the dark side of using Enneagram's personality. Anyway, check out the podcast. Um, but I want to do part two. And it's not quite the same thing as doubling down. Like, I'm going to double down now. You don't like it, I'm going uh, to really give it to you now. But I feel like I was just scratching the surface. And honestly, I, I'm doing it as a lay person. I'm trying to do it with some humility. And maybe I'm not doing such a good job of that. But I'm, I did say the Enneagram is something like a tributary to self-knowledge, to know thyself. That's the oracle at Delphi. That's St. Anthony. How do I start the path? Know thyself. It's a tributary to that stream, and that stream leads into the ocean of the divine, or I want to go even further into the ocean of emptiness. That's where the train is heading, unless somewhere in the tributary, um, somewhere in the tributaries, you dam it up and stop the flow and become identified with your Myers-Briggs, with your Enneagram number, with your big five personality test, with your, um, your uh, soul animal, with um, whatever, whatever, uh, uh, or your, um, you know, your astrological sign, or you fill in the blank. If it dams up the flow from the tributaries uh, to the river of self-knowledge, to the ocean of emptiness, then you have stopped the flow. And we might say you're stuck and we're all prone to get stuck. So that's kind of the the image that sort of spontaneously came to me as I was making the last podcast. And so I am saying self-assessment tools help us on the path of of self-knowledge. Particularly, they help us identify patterns, subpersonalities, hang-ups, wounds, and gifts. They do. So they're needed in the world. And thank God we live in an age where, where we even have access to these things. And they're not in some sort of special elite class. I mean, well, I say that because I was about to say, you know, you can just go online. And, but I realize not everybody has access to, um, to the internet. Um, but if you're listening to this podcast, you do. But my main point was, um, by and large, these, these tools are becoming more widely available. So that's not a bad thing. We need more people in the world that are more aware of how they're made up, we might say, and um, their propensities and proclivities for certain things. There's disposition, and of course, their um, hang-ups and wounds and, and complexes. We need more self-knowledge. But particularly with the Enneagram, it can put us in a cul-de-sac. And really, if I'm honest, if I want to sound more bold, a, a narcissistic cul-de-sac, where round and round we go with our number, 
And round and round we go with um, with identifying and naming other people's numbers. That's it in its the worst case scenario. And believe me, it's not all worst case scenario. I'm just saying, let's be honest that it has that uh, potential. So I want to talk about today identification because something amazing happened. I made this podcast and then I went away. You know, I was in the out of cell phone range for a week in, in the Cascades. And, and then I was busy in New Mexico. And um, I, you know, every once in a while, I might, I might check my phone and say, oh, there's some response to, to, to it. But, but anyway, when I was in New Mexico, I walked into a talk given by Cynthia Borgio, where she said, I want to talk to you about identification from a Gurdjieff perspective. And I want to talk about um, how, especially as spiritual-ish people, we can easily, easily be snared by identification, particularly with things like the Enneagram. I was like, holy shit, yes, that's what I was trying to say, except um, she said it with much more clarity and much more uh, simplicity and much more nuance. So I have some notes from, from her. And I, so I want to talk a bit about identification. And then I, I want to talk about as best I can, where the river is flowing of self-knowledge into the ocean of the divine, into the ocean of emptiness. I want to talk about Thomas Merton. I want to talk about the cosmic dance, the cosmic dance in emptiness. That's what he says. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Ken Wilber what, in what he calls radical consciousness. And um, so I'm going to try to weave in some more mystical threads, not because I'm a mystic, all right? Um, and, and not because I, I'm on the top of the mountain or, or I'm some kind of elder. I'm not, I'm not, but I'd like to be an elder. I'm, I, I hope, um, I'm on a kind of psycho-spiritual path that maybe one day, like Cynthia Borgio and James Finley and Richard Rohr, the teachers of the living school, I too can join the grove of elders, not that I'm going to be exactly like them, and but I just mean um, um, arrived in a psycho-spiritual place where you have tasted uh, a bit of your own depth of soul and had a taste of the divine and have lived enough life um, and your attention begins to turn toward the health and well-being of the larger community and the earth community. That's what I see an elder um, as embodying. And we need that, God, we need that in our world so badly, so badly. I mean, the big three, politics, corporations, and entertainment, where are the elders? You know, they just simply seem to, to not be there or they're very hidden at the very least. And in a culture where there are no elders, what can we expect? We're just swimming in in the worst aspects of early adolescence that's passing off as adulthood and as wisdom. So anyway, we must have some idea of where the, the river is flowing and it seems to be (laughs) flowing um, toward a path of less and less identification and more and more entry into the, into the mystery of being itself. And I think we need to hear that from time to time. And here's why, because we live in a culture that, I mean, you've heard of identity politics and people may use that term sometimes and 
I don't know, they may, may mean slightly different things by it, but identity politics is a good way of naming the political landscape right now, and really the cultural landscape. That people are obsessed with group identity. What group am I in? Liberal, conservative, and then every other variety and slice of that. Um, and uh, gender, and um, socioeconomic class, and um, on and on and on it goes. We, we, we're dividing the world up, and, ide- and, and, and the danger of that, and perhaps also um, the attraction of that, is I know who I am based on what group I'm identified with. And as long as I'm identified with this group, it answers the question of meaning for me. It it gives me a sense of meaning, identity, and purpose. And I largely know who I am by what I'm not. And that group, these people, that ethnicity, this um, political idea, this ideology that is not mine helps me know better who I am. So that's the political landscape. And that kind of way of being in the world... um, identity politics is now uh, is is becoming more and more apparent in the spiritual world. Something like uh, identity spirituality is happening. And um, and in some ways it seems like more superior than identity politics. Oh, I'm not a liberal, I'm a contemplative, you know, and I'm in the contemplative group and all the rest of you um, haven't entered the deep streams of the tradition and you're just still identified with your traditions and rituals, but I'm the contemplative one and so forth and so on. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but start start um, extrapolating that out into spiritual-ish circles. And you'll see that something like identity spirituality is all over the place. Um, I'm into this or that group. Um, and there comes a very subtle level of uh, superiority and self-righteousness that comes with that. I, I'm speaking from experience. I know, I'm like this too. So I'm not uh, trying to say um, I'm somehow above this. I'm not. Um, and, and the Enneagram is like that. I'm in the Enneagram camp and, and poor, you know, my cousin Tim doesn't really know anything about the Enneagram Um he can't see the truth that I, I that I've seen, and and that's and and I identify with others who are in my in group, and that's the enneagram group, and we kind of know the way the world works and the way people operate, as opposed to those people who don't, and that is so like attractive to know know thyself through group identity that. Um, we're going to continue to see more and more and more of it in, in the future. And I'm not saying it it has zero place. It has a place. And here I'd like to, um, as kind of a way of framing this, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Bill Plotkin. And um, he's one of my teachers. He's He started the Animus Valley Institute where I'm um, doing some training to be um, to be a guide. Um, in, in their pati- unique and particular way of taking people out to the wild places and doing a uh, psycho-spiritual work. So anyway, he's one of the more important teachers in, in, in my life in the last few years. And um, in his book, Nature and the Human Soul, he has something that he calls the soul-centric developmental wheel. <laughs> Sounds a bit fancy, but there's something like eight stages. And um, it's a way of, of talking about uh, psycho-spiritual growth that is uh, both nature-based and um, rooted in archetypal and cultural language 
that also has um, some uh, depth psychology and psychological development um, behind it, sort of as a as a backbone, as a spine. Anyway, I don't want to get into the whole book, but um, in one of the stages that he identifies, um, stage three, he calls the thespian. It has two names, the thespian at the oasis, but um, thespian meaning actor. And he says that the thespian is um, part of early adolescence. And early adolescence, there are two um, longings or desires that are back-to-back, like two sides of a coin, and both of them matter. And they are authenticity and social acceptance. That, that, and, and you could even think about early adolescence as um, this, this sort of dual longing as being one of the gifts of early adolescence. And I taught high school for six years and worked in, a high, in the high school setting for longer. And I know this to be the case. I didn't have that language at the time, but um, high schoolers, especially if they are in any kind of path of maturing in high school, which of course isn't always a guarantee, but um, if they're on a kind of path of maturing, they have this dual um, desire, authenticity, know who am I, who am I? Not just what my parents have told me and what my teachers have told me and what my culture, my religion has told me. Who am I? A sense of authenticity. It's, it's like a hunger. And also, where do I fit in? Identity through social acceptance. And it's both of those in a kind of alchemical combination that makes up the drive of early adolescence. It's a great gift to the world. It's a wonderful, lively, fiery, difficult, uh, contentious part of growing up. And it's a beautiful thing. What Bill Plotkin also says is in unhealthy cultures like Western culture, like American Western culture, most people are stuck now as adults still in the tensions of early adolescence. Who am I, authentic self, and where do I fit in? And actually, um, what seems to be happening is that, that in our immaturity, we are much more interested in where do I fit in, capitulation, identity, identity politics, or even identity spirituality, what group am I in? And even questions of authenticity are slip. Um, and, th- and the hunger, the craving for uh, the deeper self or the true self lessens, and I will know who I am by what group I'm in. Doesn't that, in your mind, s- sum up Western culture right now, and a particularly American culture? I will know who I am by what group I'm in. That's an expression of early adolescent immaturity. That's passing as adulthood. Now, why am I saying that right now? I'm saying that because the Enneagram in the hands of early adolescent consciousness is ready-made to dam up that uh, uh, mysterious flow um, that we would call uh, transformation because it does those two things at the same time. It says, this is who you really are. You're a number. 
And it says, you're not alone in your number. There are other people who have your number. And that answers the question of social acceptance. And if you're really into it, then now you have a complex way of identifying who's who and how the world works and how you relate to other people, um, how this number relates to that number. And it becomes almost like it has the potential to become a little tribe um, and, and answers the question of identity through social acceptance. I'm in the in-group. I know who I am and I'm in the in-group. Remember, that's the longing of early adolescence. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's an amazing, amazing thing for a while until you're stuck. And when you're stuck and the river has been dammed up or you're in the cul-de-sac of narcissism, number one, it's hard to get out. And number two, you become more and more blinded by, um, you become blinded to the mystery of reality the mystery of other human beings, the mystery of nature, because you have decided you know the way the world works. And um, yeah, so how do we get out of that? How do we, and I'm even saying this is, we're, we're probably all prone to start going around such a cul-de-sac. We're all prone to dam up the river. If I could just stop the flowing of the river, and really um, stay here where I know who I am, um, you know, I won't have to change. <laughs> and um, the world will make more sense to me. So how do we get out of that? How do we let the river flow? How do we let things like the Enneagram or other resources or tools be a tributary to self-knowledge? It has opened my eyes to my own patterns without damming up the flow of the river to deeper self-knowledge, soul knowledge, and then into the mystery of the ocean of the divine of emptiness. How do we keep that possibility uh, um, flowing if we can? Or maybe a better way to say it is, how can we remain open-handed and open-hearted enough where the great mystery can continue to work on us so that the ego in its obsession absolute panicked obsession with identification doesn't have the final say in my life, doesn't rule my life. Isn't that the hope? That's, I mean, that's my hope. So <laughs> with that said, um, let me finish a few thoughts on Plotkin and this uh, soul-centric developmental wheel. So that's really stage three, and I, I didn't do it justice. Um, maybe I should make a whole podcast in my series, Stuff That Helps, which I did um, on Plotkin's Wild Mind book, but maybe I should do one on the on the developmental wheel, or part of it at least. So I'll file that way, uh, away as an idea. But something um, amazing happens in the transition from early adolescence to late adolescence. And that is from the archetype of the thespian. And thespian is like an actor you know, trying on a mask, personas, personalities, ways of being that feel authentic and socially acceptable to something like a wanderer. That's the major transition from stage three to stage four, from early adolescence to late adolescence, and many people never go on it. Where does that fit in um, with the big archetypal stories? Well, it fits in with the journey or sometimes called the hero's journey or the great journey, that 
the real journey begins when you leave home. That's the Abraham story. Leave your father, your household, and your people. So, in other words, you know who you are. You grew up in a certain household and culture, and you took the right tests, and um, you figured out your number, and um, you you know your Myers-Briggs, and so forth and so on. And then all of a sudden, there's, um, there's a sense of a breakdown, loss, dismemberment of that way of being, and you leave home. The, arch- the, the archetypal pattern is you leave, and you begin a wandering. You go out into the desert having um, lost a sense of who I am in the world and the way the world works. And what's drawing you is, well, at least in my, in my way, is a mystery, that, that a mystery is beckoning you to let go of what has brought you thus far. Your persona, your masks, your habits, your patterns, your names, um, your groups, your identity, and to sink further into uh, the mysteries of the human psyche, of nature, of God, the divine, um, of life itself. And it's very, very, very scary, this transition. And, and it's much more likely that you and I will resist the wandering, the archetype of the wanderer, and, and build up walls and fortifications around our cul-de-sac so that our world doesn't slip. That's much more likely to be the case. So um, maybe a metaphor helps. It's like when I moved from Israel, so I was done with graduate school. Well, (laughs) it's kind of more complicated than that. I lived in Israel for a few years and I went to two different places, Jerusalem University College and then the Hebrew University. While I was at Hebrew University, the Lebanon war broke out and it was, we were running out of money. Living in Israel was very, very hard. Now there was a war with Lebanon and enough was enough and we left. And we bought a house without seeing it. My parents had a realtor who was a friend and you know how that kind of thing goes. And, and we were told by my parents and by the realtor, this is move in ready. I love that phrase. I think that means it's definitely not. That's what, if you have to use that phrase, it's definitely not move in ready. And that's what we discovered, but we bought it without seeing it. Um, and we didn't have any money to fix it up. And it became this labor of hate and eventually a little bit of love over the course of eight years, we slowly, slowly renovated this old um, historic home in Grand Rapids. And by the end, I knew personally at like every square inch of the house, I had taken down walls and built walls and redid the electrical and the plumbing and the bathrooms and the kitchen and the basement and, and, the, um, and the furnace and y- you name it. Um, I knew every square inch of that house. And it seemed like about the time that I was done and the last, um, the finishing touches on the house were made and I painted the exterior and um, then it was time to sell. 
then we moved. And it seemed to me, that's a little like this transition from early adolescence to late adolescence or from your first house of belonging out into the wilderness in, in search for another deeper house of belonging. House of Belonging is the title of a David White poem, but here's what I mean. Like you spend your time fixing up the house that you are inhabiting and arranging it and rearranging it and painting the walls and getting to know it very, very well. And it seems like for some reason, the, the story of transformation and psycho-spiritual change is like the moment you finally put in the finishing touches, like you're just screwing in the last light switch cover and you screw it in and you sit down on the couch and the feeling is I'm home. I'm home. I know now my, my house of belonging. And as soon as you sit down, there's a knock on the door and you go over and you answer it. And something like a mysterious, dark presence is standing in the doorway and she is luring you. She whispers in your ear, it's time to go. And one part of you is like, hell no, I just sat down on the couch. But another part of you, the soul or the deep self knows that if you don't walk out that door, you'll never uh, sink into the mysteries of your own being and the mystery of life, maybe even the mystery of God, that, that, that your house of belonging has become too small. You don't know yet what the alternative is, but somehow, almost in a kind of naive courage, you walk out the door, shut it behind you and never go back. That's what the transition is like. And the reason why I'm bringing that up as an image is because I think something like this is at work when we're talking about personality tests and becoming identified with numbers and letters and groups and um, even practices and really knowing who you are in your house. Something like a knock on the door happens and maybe we don't answer it for a while, but the knocking is persistent enough that maybe one day we have the courage to begin to let these, um, these um, images for who we are slip through our fingers. And we walk out the door of the first house and we begin a deeper wander. So let's talk a bit about identification from Cynthia Borgio. So, uh, simply put, she says, identification is a form of spiritual attachment. That's another way of saying it. It's just spiritual attachment, being attached to anything, um, including the Enneagram, but beyond that, any form of attachment. You're an Episcopalian, you're a contemplative, you, um, you know, whatever, just start going down the list of things that you're personally attached to. Now, you might say, well, I'm not attached to anything. I doubt that. And there, there are ways of discovering our subtle attachments, which I'll talk to, talk about in a minute. But that attachment has something to do with our identity or our self-image. You're identified when you um, 
are saying something like, I am, I know who I am. And, um, and in, in, in a certain degree, it's part to, in a certain extent, again, this is part of our own psychological growth. There is some growth that's happening when you are beginning to see that you, um, a bit of your self-image and to identify with that and even to cling to that. Um, and if you're with, excuse me, with a group, uh, I got excited, I almost knocked my mic over here. If you're um, with a group that others are like me and or others are not like me and that the and you, you feel attached to the self-image that you are holding to. Another word for that is the ego. The ego is fortified through a series of attachments. In fact, that's probably a good definition of the ego. It, the ego is um, who you think you are in the world and your attachment to who you think you are in the world. And the moment that is threatened... Somebody comes in and says, you're not that. When you're in the fight or flight reactivity, you know you're attached. You say, oh, uh, there it is. Something like attachment and identification is at work because I'm, my ego is feeling the need to fortify itself and be certain of itself. I know I am. And I, I remember this even when, um, when I first started discovering the Enneagram and I was with all my friends and we're talking about, I think I'm this, I think I'm that. And when somebody would come along and say, actually, I think you are a three or you are a seven rather than, than what you think you are as a, you know, you identify as a four. And I took that as a threat. There's no way in hell I'm that because of this, this, and this. Then obviously, identification and attachment is ruling the roost, we might say. Now, I'm, I'm largely talking on the personal level here, personal identification, but it also works with groups. And Cynthia Borgio pointed out that churches, nonprofits, and political action groups tend to almost have a kind of collective identification. Um, we are the church, the group, the organization that supports X, and there's a very subtle self-righteousness that comes with that, and we know our, ourselves by who we're against. Um, we're definitely not like that group, and so like there's a kind of a collective identification that hooks our own personal identification in, in very subtle ways. Um, and once you have that kind of group identification— she says it strokes the ego even further. So I know who I am, and this group, this church, this organization, this nonprofit strokes my sense of ego, who I think I am, and we are collectively better than fill in the blank. And that's just one of the dangers of any own kind of organization. So she just pointed that out as an, as an aside. But I think it's also worth saying that identification is pretty natural. It's a natural part of psychological development. It's actually part of what naturally happens when we begin to form an ego. An ego knows itself by what it's not. So starting with uh, gender and ethnicity and age and um, smarts, um, athletic ability, body type, um, then re religion, group, socioeconomic class, uh, ethnicity, um, so forth and so on, we very naturally come to know who we are by who we are not. 
I'm, it's differentiation is the right word. Very natural. You could even say it's part of evolution. It's part of the of evolutionary. Um, uh, I don't know. It, it's it, it's part of the evolutionary cycle. We come to know who we are through differentiation. It's just that um, it has its severe limitations. It it is in the end a kind of illusion. I'm, I'm definitely not connected to the other. I'm definitely separate than the earth. It becomes, in its most extreme form, a subject-object relationship with reality. So something has to break or give for us to move beyond the subject-object, us versus them, ego-identified, pretty natural, uh, evolutionary part of, uh, of our makeup. In other words, differentiation has its limits. It's part of how we come to, to know ourselves, but it's not maturity. It's not growth. And something like integration and connection with the other and with the earth and um, a sense of interdependence with um nature itself with reality with all beings with the universe is what we would um is the aim and the goal is is the way the river is flowing so you can see how differentiation is another word for getting stuck in a damned up tributary so anyway she um uh cynthia uh gave some pretty i think helpful ways of spotting when we're identified so i want to give them to you so uh so first like here um you can, you can hear it in our language. Here are some examples. When people say, well, that's just who I am. Okay? You, you can be pretty sure um, we're talking about some level of identification. Or, I'm a person who... And f fill in the blank. Or, you have to understand that I'm wired this way. T for me, that, that's, that's a clue. That I... Some, that some level of identification is at work. I, I, you have to understand, I just do it this way. I've always been this way. This is who I am. That something like attachment and identification is subtly has a hook and is calling the shots. And I don't know. I mean, to me, when I heard her say that, I was like, oh, dang it. First of all, I do that all the time. So, that's a clue that this isn't something as simple as um, I get to graduate from being identified. No, it's actually something that is perhaps much more like a, a constant daily invitation. Where's What am I attached to? What self-image am I attached to? How is my ego um, self-obsessed with protecting its own borders? And I can't possibly... Um, let go of the way I am, you know? It's much more like a subtle, ongoing, daily invitation than something that you just get over um, because you listen to this podcast or something. The other thing she said um, is a major tip-off has to do with the body itself. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the body never lies, which is very interesting. It's like um, it is its own... Um, consciousness in a way that our minds are sometimes completely unaware of um, and 
it's it's like we have two beings. We have this body being and we have this mental landscape. And when the mental landscape is the only thing that we notice, we tend not to even recognize what's happening in the body. So she said one way of spotting identification is to check in with the body. So things like constriction, slumped you know, shoulders, um, a higher voice, like your throat is being constricted and the octave is going up, um, shaking. That happens with me personally. Like if someone challenges me and I feel my body just shaking, almost like I'm cold, I something like identification is at work. That's for sure. That's a, for me, that's a sign. Not that then I just, it's as simple as, oh, I'm identified and I just let it go. It's almost more like, oh, okay, this is happening right now. This is happening. This is something to watch. Watch how my ego is is afraid is afraid right now, and um, and my body is the thing that's reacting, even much more so than than what my mental thoughts, uh, whatever mental loop I might be caught in. So, so let me give a personal example for a second. Ever since I was a little kid, I struggled with math, and. It was strange because, I at least I think, it's actually, it's hard for me to say exactly what my problem with math was. <laughs> I think I felt as a kid, my experience as a kid, is that something um, didn't seem to make sense about it. It was like, uh, it, I don't know if... Um, the abstract nature of it, like I, I'm kind of um, maybe making this too philosophical, but like what is a four? What is a six? And what are these signs? It's like it's it's a kind of symbolic language, but for some reason, I didn't connect with it. I didn't understand it. And a lot of times, um, I felt very blank. And when teachers would... Um, explain math problems and I might raise my hand and say I didn't really get that and they would go to explain explain it every once in a while I could feel like almost like a screen come in front of me and I just would go blank it's like I would zone out and it didn't exactly feel like um I willed that to happen like I just don't really like like math I want to tune it out it's like something didn't compute and maybe as a kind of like um um, survival strategy, perhaps, I just kind of went blank. And and it was frustrating to me. And so the way I passed math growing up was to cheat. I remember this very strongly in the third grade. We do, had to do these flashcards. And um, the teacher would um, hold up these flashcards, but I could see that if I leaned forward a little bit, the answer was written in the upper left-hand corner upside down of the flashcards that she was using. So that was my first introduction to, oh, I, I, I see how I can survive in this situation. I, I don't have my math facts memorized. Math is difficult for me. And so I started this pattern of cheating. So that led to, over time, a story. Brene Brown is always um, saying, what story am I making up? Which is such a fantastic question to wrestle with. But for me, it was a story. And the story was, I'm not good at math. I can't do math. And actually, math would give me a tremendous amount of anxiety. And 
in college, I had to get a tutor. I was an English major and I put off my final math class till my final semester because I was scared to death because the story was, I'm not good at math. And I thought to myself, once I get through with this, I'll never have to deal with this ever again in my life because that's not who I am, I might say. I'm not the kind of, pr- I'm into English, you know. Um, I'm into symbol and metaphor, which is funny because math is a symbolic language, you know. It's, But anyway, I was 100% sure that I had no skills in this. And it gave me a lot of anxiety. It gave me so much anxiety that every single year when my taxes would come due, I would seriously um, nearly have a panic attack. And all I was doing was trying to collect what I needed to give my tax person. And of course, I, I, the thing I knew 100% was that I cannot do my taxes because I am not good at math. And it's not my thing. You don't understand. I'm not wired that way. So I need to get this out of my sight um, into the hands of a so-called expert. And when I started to see this as a story that I was making up, um, eventually, through a weird, uh, through a bunch of circumstances, I won't go on and on about them. I decided one year I'm going to do my own taxes, and it it pushed me. This sounds so silly to even admit, but right to the brink of like very serious anxiety, panic attack, depression. Um, I am worthless. It pushed me right to the point of that. Walking through that door saying, I'm going to do this myself. I don't have the money to pay anybody for it. And I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk out of the house of my, of belonging, of the story that says, I'm the person who can't do this stuff. And I'm going to walk out the door and go into some unknown territory was absolutely terrifying, but also absolutely exhilarating because it turns out actually I can, (laughs) it's not that hard. There are all kinds of resources and tools for uh, available to do such a thing. And it, it blew my mind, and I realized this is a story I'm making up. Now, that doesn't mean I am going to become an actuary and you know, start doing complex algebra. Um, there, it's not like the entire story was false. Maybe I don't have as good of math skills as other people. That's, that is true. But the story I was making up is that I am not this kind of person. And if I can get this out of sight, out of mind, I won't have to deal with it. And that's the, that, that is becoming identified with the story of I am the person who can't do math. You know, Another friend of mine was told by her whole life that she was not an athlete compared to her friends, compared to her brother, whatever. You didn't get the athlete genes. And not only was she told this, it was a story that she began to tell, a story she was making up. I am not an athlete. And one day she, she just decided, how do I know? And started running very small distances and, and said, I'm going to run a 5K. And this was a monumental achievement on her part. And the achievement wasn't that she wasn't an athlete and she forced herself to run. The monumental achievement was it was a story she was making up. It turns out it was not true. All an athlete is, is someone who exercises, works out, sets goals, which is exactly what she did. And it turns out her body could do it just fine. I mean, this is like 
Um, this is what I mean by identification. The way it gets its story into our way of being and begins to call the shots. What does that have to do with Enneagram? It has the same potential. Well, you don't understand, I am a one. And that's the way I am. That's the way God made me. That I'm wired that way. I couldn't possibly do it any differently. I couldn't possibly, I don't even have an imagination for another way of being because I am a six. Um, and I, so that's a subtle clue um, that identification is ruling your life. Okay, this podcast is getting long. So um, let's get to Ken Wilber. Let's talk about consciousness. I'm going to read you something. And um, I'm, I'm going to read you something that's rich and deep and I barely understand. And I certainly don't understand it in its fullness. That is for sure the case. I want to read to you um, what Ken Wilber has to say about radical consciousness. And maybe the way to hear this is just to let it work on you. Um, maybe you're in a place where th who you think you are is much more like a dammed up tributary or much more like a cul-de-sac. And maybe just by hearing these words... Um, some cracks will appear in the dam. That's kind of the intention of, of reading maybe such a complex um, and, and deep, rich uh, paragraph, or a couple paragraphs here from, from Ken Wilber. And then I want to turn to Thomas, Thomas Merton. So this is what Ken Wilber says about radical consciousness. Radical consciousness is unqualifiable, which can be metaphorically indicated by saying that pure consciousness is pure emptiness. Pure consciousness is pure emptiness. So, back to my metaphor, Ken Wilber is beginning to talk about the ocean. Where is the flowing river of transformation taking us? Where is um, consciousness taking us? It's taking us into the river of, or into the ocean of emptiness, into the ocean of the divine, into the ocean of no thing in the ocean where identification is meaningless, where Enneagram number doesn't make sense anymore. It's like an echo from a distant time that brought you only so far in the journey. So let me go on. Emptiness is not a concept. It is a simple and direct awareness. He says, look, right now you can see various colors. That tree is green. The earth over there is red, the sky is blue. You can see the color. So your awareness itself is colorless. You can see the color, but your awareness is colorless. It's like the cornea of your eye, which is clear. If the cornea were red, you wouldn't be able to see red. You can see red because the cornea is redless or colorless. Just so, your present consciousness sees color and is therefore itself colorless. You can see space, so your present consciousness is spaceless. You are aware of time because your consciousness is timeless. You see form, your consciousness is formless. 
So your basic immediate consciousness, not the objects of your consciousness, but consciousness itself, the witnessing awareness, one of his favorite terms, the witnessing awareness is colorless, formless, spaceless, timeless. In other words, your basic primordial awareness is unqualifiable. It is empty of form, color, space, and time. So some part of your consciousness, the witnessing awareness, even witnesses things like your Enneagram number, your Myers-Briggs, your ego, uh, the things which, uh, you, with which you become identified. You have a witnessing presence that witnesses even that. Your consciousness right now, he goes on, is pure emptiness. And yet an emptiness in which the entire universe is arising. Now, now here we're entering the ocean here. The blue sky exists in your consciousness right now. The red earth exists in your consciousness right now. The form of that tree exists in your consciousness right now. Time is flowing by in your consciousness right now. You have a, a, a witnessing awareness, this consciousness, of which all these things are arising. So the entire world of form is arising in your own formless awareness right now. In other words, emptiness and form are not two. They are both one taste at this moment, and you are that. And here's where I think um, he's luring us like a knock on the door um, of your first house of belonging uh, toward the mysteries here. You are that. You are emptiness and form. One taste, one moment. You are emptiness. <laughs> so definitely you're not an Enneagram number in that sense. Truly, he says, emptiness and consciousness are just two names for the same reality which is this vast openness and freedom in which the entire universe is arising moment to moment. An emptiness that is your own primordial awareness right now. And an emptiness that by any other name is radical spirit itself. So what do we mean when we say, I am. What, what is being itself? And what is this emptiness, this consciousness in which being is arising? You know, I think it's interesting that um, God says to Moses, uh, when the people ask, who sent you, say, I am. Say being. Say emptiness, in other words. I am. Pure being sent you. That is something beyond name, beyond identification, beyond gender, beyond Yahweh, beyond Elohim, beyond form. It's formless. That's the image of the divine we have in the Moses story. Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. I am. Being. Being itself. That the what he says, by any other name, is spirit itself, God, the divine, the whole, one taste of the whole, something like that, um, 
is just pure being and you are just pure being. Of which, because of, we could say, the human condition, we only get a taste of from time to time. Pure being, pure emptiness, formlessness, I am. I am that I am, says uh, Yahweh to Moses. That's the mystical um, ocean of which the tributary of self-knowledge is, um, is going, is heading toward. It's heading downhill toward that direction. Um, and, and either we can get in the flow the mysterious flow, or we can try to dam it up. And what will ultimately collapse the dam is death itself. We are flowing toward this vast emptiness, whether we like it or not, whether we cling and grip so tightly to our, um, to, to our, um, precious little egos and all of our, uh, that we think we are, um, only to have death rip it out of our hands anyway. (laughs) I think that's why Richard Rohr is saying uh, one way of summing up um, transformation in any kind of spiritual tradition is that we die before we die. What does he mean by that? We die to these precious attachments before we die, and thus the river flows and into the deeper streams and into a taste of the vast emptiness. So that, that's to, to speak of the mystical tradition. And, and, and I think Thomas Merton... Um, my, when my, actually, I, to be honest, it was my wife's idea to say, well, maybe you should make another podcast uh, called Step Away from the Enneagram Part Two. And, and we started a whole conversation uh, about um, some ideas. And she gave me tons of ideas for this, this podcast, including reminding me of this Merton quote that comes from New Seeds of Contemplation. Um, and it's kind of long. And so, again, um, just let it work on you. What do you hear? What are you drawn to? What troubles you? And, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give a few little interpretations, but I do want to end with um, largely the words of Merton here. First of all, he says, what is serious to men, and I think you have to forgive his um, um, uh, patriarchal sort of language here. It's writing in a different time period. What is serious to men or humankind, human beings, is often trivial in the sight of God. What is serious to us humans is is often trivial in the sight of God or the divine or union or oneness or emptiness. (laughs) What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. At any rate, the Lord plays and diverts himself in the garden of his creation. And here's the sentence that I'm interested in right now. And if we could let go of our obsession with what we think is the meaning of it all, we might be able to hear this call and follow him in his mysterious cosmic dance. He's saying that um, to be in this larger river in the flow here is maybe much more like play than an obsession with naming and identifying and categorizing and parsing. It's much more like play. And if we could uh, let go of our obsession, fill in Enneagram number or Myers-Briggs or whatever, you know, if we could let go of our obsession with what we think is the meaning of it all, the meaning of who I am, 
I know now fill in the blank, or I know what reality is, or even worse, I know who God is. We might be able to hear his call. (laughs) And what is the call? It's beckoning us into a dance, into the mysterious dance to leave our first house of belonging and enter the mysteries where we thought we were disconnected from everything by parsing out the world, but it turns out we are deeply interconnected with a vast intelligence of the universe and of the divine. So I'll read more. We do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game or that dance. When we are alone on a starlit night, Last night, I was just, my friend um, Jonathan uh, was over, and he's a school teacher, and he's about ready to start school, and we were just sitting around the fire and just talking, and I looked up, and there were the stars. And I was like, I could, it was almost like I could feel my um, body change, and it's like I I had to catch my breath, almost like, oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, When we're alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat. Like these, these subtle um, mysteries that the world is doing, is going on, is moving, is, is alive, um, is being itself. When we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our own hearts, Or when we, like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. At such times, the awakening, the turning inside out of all the values, the quote newness, the emptiness, and the purity of vision that makes themselves evidence provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. Like, who am I? I am simply being in a larger being, (laughs) a world within a world within a world in a cosmic dance of which the echoes are all around me in the ordinariness of life. That's what Thomas Merton seems to be saying. And he goes on. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. (laughs) Oh, see, he just kills me. Um, For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, or of being, I might say, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, i.e. all the stuff I've been naming, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. And if I can translate, when we are caught in the narcissistic cul-de-sac of identification, we go round and round and round until we find ourselves in greater sadness, absurdity, and despair. And then he's kind of light about it. But it doesn't matter that much. Because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things. I just thought about Mary Oliver saying, 
Tell me about your despair and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on, she says. The rain is moving across the landscape. Um, the, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are honking harsh and excited. She says something like that. Um, the world offers to yourself, uh, offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese. That's what she says, harsh and excited. Announcing over and over again your place in the family of things, in a whole, in other words. Meanwhile, the world goes on. He says, Thomas Merton says, but it doesn't matter that much because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. Always the frog plopping into the pond and the grove of birds, or the, the flock of birds descending on a grove of junipers. Always. The, the wild geese honking harsh and excited. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is in the midst of us, for it beats in our very blood, whether we want it to or not. This emptiness, this being, this larger whole, this ocean. And here's the final sentence. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose. That's what I'm saying. The knock on the door of the first house of belonging and that mysterious call beckons you out and it's like you forget. <laughs> the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our awful solemnity to the winds and join in the general dance. Friends, if you made it this far, that's what I hope you hear as an invitation. What are ways I can join in the general dance of being itself, of the great I am, of the ocean? And may I find multiple ways of, um, I don't know, putting little cracks in the dam of who I think I am and letting that, that, um, that pent-up water flow again down into the great river and into the larger ocean. That's the hope. Um, yeah, so I don't know what you heard today. Maybe a word or a phrase or an image. And may it work on you. Uh, may the mystery work on you. Um, and... Um, may you hear this call, the call of the, the general dance, which is ever present. So thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for being a part of the po uh, of this podcast, Hints and Guesses. Um, as always, you can become um, a patron through patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson or through my website. If you want to support this, if you, if you find it helpful, you can support me directly, which um, I'm really grateful to my Patreon supporters. You can support this podcast by sharing it. If you think, hey, maybe this will help someone else, um, feel free to share it uh, with your friends. And um, upcoming for me 
I have another retreat at the very end of September. You can go to generationhope.org, I believe it is, or through the East Lake Community Church website and find it. Ryan Meeks and I, my good friend uh, and pastor and coach out in Seattle, are going to do another two more um, wilderness retreats that we call Wilderness Within at the end of September. So if you live in that part of the world or you want to fly there, either way, um, we invite you to do so. These are incredible um, experiences. We love to, to do them, and the last two were just amazing. So um, we've got two more coming. Um, and I have some openings on my Israel trip in January, January 2 through 11. Again, I've got a group from Seattle, but I have people coming from all over. So if you want to go on a pilgrimage, and that's what it is, um, uh, an adventure, um, into Israel, get a taste of what this place is like. What is Israel? What is Palestine? And um, what is this tradition? And what would it be like to follow the life of Jesus through the land? Um, I've been doing these for a long time, and I'm, I'm, I continue to be surprised how life-changing they really are. So um, if you're interested in pil pilgrimage, check it out on my website. Those are the, are the two things um, coming. And of course, if you're ever in West Michigan, come to C3 any Sunday and hear a really interesting talk um, by all kinds of um, very uh, amazing guests, and we have really awesome music. So every Sunday morning, we meet in the community center in Grand Haven, and I invite you out to C3. So um, yeah, that's all I got for you today. Peace, my friends. <laughs>